Good afternoon, and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU News Director Will Murphy, filling in this afternoon for Bob Zaltzberg, who is out of town this afternoon. He'll be back here hopefully next Friday. Also in the studio this afternoon is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Good afternoon. Hello, Will. And we have three guests in the studio. I don't know what that tone of voice <laughs> portends for this program, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. We have three guests from the state legislature with us this afternoon, State Senator Vi Simpson and State Representatives Peggy Welch and Matt Pierce. Welcome to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. And I would, should make a quick program note. We invited uh, Senator Brent Steele to participate. He was unable to. And I thought we had invited Eric Cook, but apparently I was mistaken in that. So I apologize for that miscommunication on my part. But we do have three wonderful guests in the studio. Kind of a dem fest. <laughs> it's nice. It is. Um, if you have a comment or question for our guests, and we already have some uh, emails coming in, so you might be well advised to uh, get in early. The phone number in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll-free outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. Now, we've got about, let's see, today is the 13th, so we have about a little more than two weeks. Can that be right? Two weeks and change for the session? Very hard to believe. Yeah, about 15 days. Uh, let's get, first of all, from all three of you, your assessment, maybe like in terms of a report card. How would you grade the session so far? Vi, let's start with you. Totally incomplete. We haven't done anything major. Um, we've been kind of messing around with uh, some very important issues, uh, property taxes, uh, health care, um, the budget, which is the only thing we are actually required to do during this legislative session, uh, full-day kindergarten, uh, which we're still dealing with how how that's going to be implemented, although everyone's kind of signed off on it, uh, on, on doing something with it. So uh, I would definitely say incomplete. We have a lot of work to do in the next two weeks, and uh, it's a very strange ses- session that has waited so long to get so much, to leave so much undone. There is a sense, though, in every session where a lot of the financial stuff comes at the end and everybody's waiting for the numbers to come out, right? So in that sense, not entirely atypical. The budget is always the last thing that gets put to bed. But this year, uh, there's so much tied together. Um, We were talking before the program started about uh, the whole property tax relief issue, um, all of the additional gaming or new gaming, uh, new revenue opportunities that are out there, all of those. Uh, factor into into the into the budget, and so many of these things, including the the health insurance proposal and and the financing of that, are being held off to the end. And it seems like we have all this to kind of work out at, in the last few days. It okay. seems like a very heavy load. <laughs> Peggy, um, I agree with uh, Vi that it is an incomplete, but I think we're going to. I'm optimistic that we're going to at least get a B out of this. Um, <laughs> Because if nothing else in the budget, um, Matt's and my um, language to talk about total tax restructuring is moving forward, and we're going to keep fighting for that. And then we think that's a very positive thing, not just for immediate assistance, but we're trying to look long term on that. That at least we've got something moving on health care. Is it perfect? Is it everything that we need? No, but at least we're moving forward. And there is a commitment from the leadership in the House and the Senate to be able to put some kind of funding mechanism into some bill. So I'm optimistic about that. Um, so, And there's there's lots of things. We uh, On Thursday, yesterday, was that, Matt? We did a lot of concurrences of bills that we were sending to the governor. We agreed with the changes that were made in the Senate. Uh, and Matt and I both have seen a lot of bills that have moved forward and that are going to the governor, and we're excited about that. So there's been a lot of things that have been completed, but when you think about those major issues, the tax restructuring, the budget, and the health care issue, we still have a long way to go. But a lot can get done in these next 15 days. Okay. Matt? It has been a strange session in that people have not staked out firm positions on things. Usually I'm used to a situation where, particularly when you have Democrats controlling the House, Republicans controlling the Senate, usually you have pretty firm positions um, from each side and you kind of – everybody's got their markers down and you know where they're coming from. And then it's just a matter of where will the compromise settle out or can you get to a compromise. And, I, and that, that has not seemed to have occurred yet, which is kind of the weird thing where no, it seems like st- stuff is not getting done. But I 
my best guess is that might be because we're in a new dynamic we haven't had before where the Democratic House is now dealing with a Republican governor. And, uh, and you know, same thing for the Republican Senate. They're used to this kind of split government, but now they have the governor kind of on their side. And, and the governor has been fairly quiet, it seems to me, at least from the sense I've gotten uh, in the House. And so I keep waiting for at what point will the governor kind of pop up and start laying down all of his demands for what he wants with the budget or other things. But I, I think people just seem unwilling to kind of rush out in front. It seems that they want the other side to make the first move on all these major issues. I think we'll come back to all these things, the budget, property taxes, health care, and the cigarette tax, and the politics of the session. But right now, we've got a uh, phone caller. So let's go to Aaron. Hi there. This is uh, is Aaron. Hi. Go ahead. Um, Yeah, I just uh, actually have something that's more on the uh, national stage. I just wanted to throw this out there as a comment. Um, I've considered myself a conservative, but I've always been concerned because I was against the the war in Iraq and, uh, and our, the foreign policy that led us there. And uh, I, I realize you're talking to Democrats there, but I just wondered, I just recently found out about Ron Paul, who's running on the Republican side and seems to be, to my mind, the most uh, principled in being against the war as in being against the foreign policy of uh, preemptive strike. And I just wondered if, um, if, if the panel there had any uh, thoughts on Ron Paul, not that they would agree with him on everything, but I just wondered. And I thought people in Bloomington would be interested maybe in, in looking into him. Okay. Thanks for calling, Aaron. I appreciate it. And Thanks I'm getting uh, some expressions of puzzlement, and that's uh, surprising among uh, political uh, junkies that they, yeah. the, the name is not registering. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with that, um, but I appreciate that this is someone who is – looking at someone different and trying to really uh, analyze and make a good decision. We in the legislature don't obviously get to affect national policy. Um, We do have somewhat of a bully pulpit that we can talk to our constituents and share our views. But what we do get to affect is how we take care of the men and women that have gone to Iraq as the Indiana National Guard and they come back. And I'm real pleased that we have been passing legislation that is recognizing that we need to be granting and extending more benefits to them um, and making sure that they're taken care of when they come back. So may not be able to affect the national policy, but we can affect how we take care of the men and women when they return. Interestingly, this session, we did have uh, legislation uh, talking about divestiture of investments of uh, having to do with uh, Darfur, and uh, and hmm. it, it kind of the the legislation passed the House and kind of got stuck in the Senate committee, uh, and was really changed to a resolution uh, asking the perf and turf uh, people who who invest. Uh, retirement funds to report back to legislative council, which is the leadership of both the House and the Senate, uh, on their divesting decisions. Um, so it isn't very – it isn't as high, high an impact as uh, we might have had, I think. But it uh, it still points out that there are some things that we can do as a state government. And uh, when the federal government refuses to act in some areas, it it is it does behoove us as leaders uh, to to at least make some important statements. It's very uncommon uh, for the, the, the state folks to do something like that. I mean the Bloomington City Council frequently weighs in on peak oil and – uh, policy in the Middle East and all sorts of things, but the state legislature doesn't do that very often. There were several states that di- divested um, uh, investments uh, during the uh, apartheid discussions uh, in South Af- uh, over South Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, and there are some states that are considering uh, Sudan resolutions or Sudan legislation this year. Um, but uh, Indiana as a state did not do anything. But I believe Indiana University divested uh, in the during the South African uh, debates. So it's not terribly unusual and certainly is something that within our preview to do. Let me, let me, I was a co-author of that Darfur divestment bill and, and I'm very frustrated by it because I and um, Representative Cindy Noe, who is a Republican author on the bill, we met with all of the officials of PERF, TURF, state police pension, all the people who have to divest, we went through that bill line by line uh, in a conference call with an expert in this whole Darfur divestment. It's kind of leading the way. We went through analysis of every little line in that bill and how it would work. And we had that bill completely written in a way that everyone in that room agreed with that it could be easily implemented and would not in any way harm the viability of the funds. 
or the rate of return. And, and it's just a no-brainer to me. And it, it got out of the House and went to the Senate and just, you know, became nothing. And I'm very frustrated by that because we have our own presidents declared that genocide is occurring there and we ought to do something about it. And, uh, you know, if the federal government's not going to act, this is one small way the state can do something to say we're not going to assist companies that are assisting genocide. I don't understand why that's so hard, but it went to the Senate and, you know, it's basically disappeared. Well, okay. Now, maybe just because I'm sitting back with the gentleman who has been the author of the bill, even though that particular measure did not move forward, the language of Darfur is being put into another bill and is moving forward, is my understanding. Ah. So it is, it's, so it it is moved, they, 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 we can see it in conference committee. But just real quickly, um, Will, we do things. We, and in Bai's right, resolutions are not this, as strong as a bill, but we've got a resolution being led by uh, Representative Eric Cook, and a lot of Republicans and Democrats have signed on to it, to let the federal government know that we're not happy with No Child Left Behind. Um, and lots of states are doing this, and that we have some concerns. We want our federal legislators to know that as they are reconsidering the authoriz- reauthorization of NCLB. So we do try to speak up sometimes on those federal issues. Okay, but you probably won't be following the example of uh, what is it, the Vermont, uh, 35 uh, communities in Vermont that are uh, voting for the impeachment of President Bush? <laughs> haven't seen that resolution. No, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay. We have a caller on the line. Let's go to Steve. Hello. Hi, are you there? Yes, this is Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, good afternoon, lawmakers. Um, I wanted to let you know that w- one of my major concerns is energy and the environment. And I've also been studying the transportation issue. And I think there are, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that could be gained in terms of energy and protecting the environment by um, developing modes of transportation other than the automobile. Um, We've been building almost exclusively for automobility for decades, and I I feel we need to do something, you know, to change that. Um, And uh, I also think it's a big problem, and I think it's going to take cooperation at the federal, state, and local level um, to make big gains in this area. Um, So I was just wondering... uh, if you all are working on something uh, in the Indiana legislature on that, and uh, maybe you could tell me what that is. Okay. And uh, one, one more thing, I'll just mention there's a Step It Up uh, right. program uh, rally type of thing. I think that's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow. And um, a, lot, a lot of people in Bloomington are, are very concerned about energy and transportation. Okay. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate the call, and it looks like we have folks here who want to speak to this issue. This has been one of the real successes of this of this legislative legislative session so far, I think, and that is that we've had some real serious discussions about mass transit, about um, about commuter rail, about the possibilities for alternative transportation around the state of Indiana, and uh, a couple of bills have passed that would uh, would provide um, a vehicle. If you will, for uh, for the study of um, uh, particularly mass transit uh, opportunities, um, there is one corridor specifically from that that goes from Delaware County, Muncie, uh, through Anderson and to Indianapolis, and then from Indianapolis to Bloomington. Uh, that would be uh, light rail, commuter rail high-speed, we don't know, uh, but a, a study that would be conducted. And um, uh, there uh, is the possibility, I think, of putting some specific language in the budget uh, to make sure that the uh, that INDOT, uh, which has been much more interested in asphalt than in um, alternative modes of transportation, uh, would actually spend the money and get the study done. I think it's a really important uh, step forward. And there are people talking about mass transit this year who haven't ever talked about this issue before, which I think is really, really an important uh, uh, step forward. We really do have the possibility of a sea change in this area, and it's just a question of whether we can follow through in upcoming sessions. But it is definitely true there's been more discussion about commuter rail, mass transit, alternative forms of transportation now than I've ever seen. And probably the most exciting moment I've had as a legislator this session 
was when the um, House Environmental Affairs Committee and the House Transportation Committee had a joint hearing, not on any particular bill, but just on the issue of mass transportation commuter rail. We brought in experts from across the country. We brought in people running bus systems in Indiana and people who have a vision for um, a rail system in the state and had them testify. We also invited NDOT to come and explain what exactly is happening now um, with NDOT and mass transit. And I can tell you that although the NDOT people were very nice and responsive to our questions, you could tell they felt like they were having a root canal <laughs> to this whole process of having being asked, what exactly are you doing? And what we pretty much learned is there's zero vision for mass transit at NDOT right now. And that what little funding comes through there is just really trying to uh, give some small breadcrumbs for local bus companies to beg for. And so the most important thing I learned from that hearing is uh, I learned that there are three proposed um, high-speed rail lines coming out of Chicago, one to go to Detroit, which would go along the Lake Shore up in the Lake County area, one over to Cleveland, which would go through South Bend and uh, Fort Wayne, and then one down to Cincinnati that would come through Indianapolis as well. Those three lines, the the NDOT people testified that it would be about a billion dollars to make those three lines happen. And, of course, the NDOT people said, of course, we don't have the billion, and that's really, you know, impossible, and we just have to hope the federal government gives us some money. And I said, how much will um, Mm I-69 extension cost? And the answer was the latest estimate, $2.2 billion. So right there is a decision to be made, a priority to be chosen. Do you go with old-fashioned asphalt for $2.2 billion? which a lot of people question what, what that will really get you in return, or do you, or you spend half that money and end up with three high-speed rail lines coming across Indiana? To me, the choice is easy, but we ought to at least have the discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And we've also, Steve, you may be interested in knowing that we have been working on legislation regarding renewable energy. And again, these two are the experts on that, but um, I'm pleased that we're at least talking about that also. Right. One, one other um, small um, point to make as well. I had a bill that would require all government buildings to be built with um, leading environmental and energy designs, lead standards, and uh, almost got it out of house, came a few votes short. But the buzzsaw I ran into is the home builders, for some reason I cannot figure out, were really, because I'd, re- I'd gotten the bill amended in a way that didn't really impact residential home building um, because they were complaining about it so much, and yet um, they lobbied hard. And the thing that I found is there's a lot of misinformation out there about the cost of building these buildings would lead. From looking at the studies, it's maybe 1% or 2% more, maybe 5% on the outside additional cost up front to have an environmentally um, friendly design, an energy-saving design. But you get all kinds of savings back almost immediately and certainly over the life of that building because it's more efficient. And uh, for some reason, people are putting out the word that it would be 50% more expensive to build a building that way. And then everyone said, oh, you're going to raise our property taxes through the roof by making all the governments build these you know, huge, expensive buildings. And so um, I obviously have to do a better job of educating the General Assembly on that issue. But I, I think that's something we clearly need to do is get all the public funds that are involved in construction to be d- building the most energy-efficient, environmentally-friendly buildings possible, good for the environment, and it's going to save us money in the long run. It's a no-brainer. But there are some people that are just not getting it yet. Okay. We have a, a, a ton of emails over here, and we have a caller on the line. I want to get to that caller and then maybe to some of these emails, if that's all right. And we have Leslie on the line who's been waiting very patiently. Leslie, go ahead. And, and interested in the topic as well. <laughs> Good. Uh, yes, uh, I'm calling in regards to Medicaid funding, specifically in regards to Medicaid funding for folks with disabilities. And just kind of as a starter, my understanding is that the House pretty much flatlined Medicaid in the budget uh, going forward, and the House, uh, the Senate has put a 5% increase as well as protected some of the funding that was saved, the savings from the Fort Wayne and Silvercrest closures. And I want, I'm asking people of the House, Peggy and Matt, if we're, as it comes back into conference, if your caucus <coughs> and your um, and the House is going to get supportive of getting those Medicaid uh, increases in there that we know need to happen in order for people to be served, particularly people that are waiting on the waiting list. Leslie, there was a, another email or, uh, email that came in from Bert Clemens with Crystal, uh, also <laughs> interested in the same topic. And I just want to add before our legislators take this question, um, he continues that many of these families have been on the list for a very long time and desperately need help for their disabled children, children with autism, and other dis- developmental disabilities. These services would include respite, daily living skills training, transportation, health care, and coordination. So if you want to take it from there. Sure. 
um, as we have discussed before on different shows, the House budget, when it left us, was a flat line of the Medicaid uh, budget, knowing that they need at least 5 or more percent increase. Um, as I've explained before, sometimes you use bills, especially in the beginning, to send messages. And the message from the Senate was that there are people on waiting lists, and if there are, why are you reverting funds, putting it into the general budget to make the, the bottom line look good? When that money should have been diverted from, if they had money, divert it from one particular program and help those people on the waiting list or help the people within Medicaid. And that was the message that we sent. The Senate has sent us uh, a budget back that does have the 5% increase. Um, I feel very confident that we will be supportive of that uh, because that's the right thing to do. And if my leadership now says, oh, no, we're going to fight that, then I will stand up to them on that because I do believe that we have to put at least a 5% increase to be reasonable. Um, but, um, again, the message that we want people to hear is that if we appropriate money to be spent and there are people who are in need, it's not willy-nilly spending, but people who are in need, that money should be used for that. Right. This is kind of the irony to me is the message the House Ways and Means Committee was sending to FSSA is, look, you keep telling us you're saving all this money from privatization. You have all this, you know, you're such great managers, all this money piled up. But where is it going then? Why, why isn't this waiting list coming down? And so the irony is the message we were sending is like, look, you're going to have to pay attention to us and answer these questions and let us know how you're managing this process, or we're just not going to hand money over to you willy-nilly. The unfortunate part is that message was lost completely outside the building or outside state government, mm-hmm. and the message to the people on the outside was, well, you must not care about us because you flatlined all our programs. You know, what are we, what's the deal? Don't you get it? So I can understand why people would be frustrated on the outside if they don't quite understand what's going on in the inside. But believe me, I have no doubt that the House Democratic Caucus at the end of the day is going to want to get the services that we know many people rely upon for the very quality of life. And it's always been my position, and I know it's Peggy's and Vi's, the most important priority for this budget has to be to take care of people who really need the help to survive in our society and to have some kind of minimal quality of life. And, and, you know, I'm not going to leave those people behind. And we did have in the House budget that the money that we gained or saving because of the closing of these institutions uh, would be used to help folks and it would not be reverted. That language was in the budget. Uh, let me jump in here to say that uh, the Senate funded Medicaid at 5 per- 5% increases, which is what the Office of Medicaid requested. That doesn't translate, however, into doing anything about about the uh, the waiver waiting lists. Um, and so w- there has to be more affirmative uh, action on the part of both the House and the Senate, in my opinion, to start to deal with those waiting lists. Um, the 5% increase is what is needed to maintain services for the people who are eligible for Medicaid, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that includes the increased costs of providing those services. But it doesn't necessarily speak to the waiting list. And there is some language that I'm, I'm alerting, and I'm using this as a reason to talk to my colleagues here, <laughs> Matt and Peggy, to be alert. There is, a, uh, there is language in this budget, in the Senate budget, uh, which we tried to get out on amendment, um, which uh, allows all of the choice home health care dollars for people uh, who are elderly or people with disabilities to be cared for in their home, all of that to be transferred to Medicaid waivers for home health services, which it could be very devastating to uh, to the choice program. There's some narrative language in there that must come out. I hope to be a, a uh, an advisor on the budget conference committee and uh, we'll be working uh, to get that language out, and I hope you'll help me do that. And, and I know that Leslie has a, a real interest, obviously, um, with working at Stonebelt and directing the, the action there about the disabled. But something that was important in the House version of the bill is that we provided additional funding for our community health centers across the state. Um, and we put in $30 million, and I believe the Senate budget backed it to $15 million. And these are points of direct care and access for our working poor. And so I think that's going to be something that we're really going to be fighting for also when we're just kind of generally talking about the health and the needs of the, in, of the citizens of the state of Indiana. I think you, you may have addressed this in speaking about the waivers, but I was, I was baffled comparing the, two, the session last uh, year and this year, uh, maybe it was two years ago, when uh, you, Senator Simpson, and Jeff Espick and the governor got in kind of a, uh, a little waltz about 
the numbers that were needed with ESPIC saying it was something like 4 or 5% and the governor saying 7% and you said we better look at about 10% somewhere in there. And this year it's very curious where uh, the, the, on the Democratic side it seems to be flatlined with the notion we'll come up with this money. These are services that are on demand. It has to get paid. And the Republicans saying you heartless people, um, you, why aren't you putting in 5 percent? Can you explain this this change in attitude on the different well, caucuses? First of all, and, and I, I've, I've explained this to Leslie and I think she understands it as well as we do, um, me, how much you budget for Medicaid is irrelevant to how much you spend because me, Medicaid is a – um, an, an entitlement program, which means that anyone that is eligible, anybody that meets the income eligibility requirements and the and the the needs requirements for uh, Medicaid must be served. If they go to a, a provider, they must be served, and the state must pay the bill regardless of whether we budgeted the money or not. And so, it is one of those areas where, when when the budget is being developed, people play with those numbers a bit because the service as we know, are going to be provided. Um, but, the, but the 5 percent, even a 5 percent increase, does not speak to, to the waiting lists for the waiver programs. 5 percent increase will serve the same people that we're serving mm-hmm. now with the, with the uh, current level of services, maybe a few others, but uh, depending on, on who's eligible and, and how many people show up for which services. But the, the important point here is that if we ever want to address the waiting list, uh, it has nothing to do with the appropriation that we make into Medicaid because we need to start thinking about 10 percent increase in Medicaid if we're going to and, – and it has to be set aside to address wait, the waiver waiting list, okay. uh, whether it's autism or, uh, or the home health services waiting list or any of the other waiting lists that – and there are, are many. Okay. Uh, we have a caller on the line. I'm going to have to – Uh, Ask that caller to hold on just a second because we do need to take a break. You're listening to Noon Edition. Our guests are Senator Vi Simpson and Representatives Peggy Welch and Matt Pierce. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. Saturday morning from 9 to noon in front of Borders Books and Music in Eastland Plaza, WFIU staff will be assisting the Red Cross in receiving donations of books, CDs, and DVDs for their annual book fair. Saturday from 4 to 8 o'clock, the Community Foundation of Morgan County presents an antique appraisal fair, sort of an antiques roadshow type event, and that's from 4 to 8 in Newby Gym in Mooresville. And Sunday... Bloomington's Homeward Bound Walk takes place in 3rd Street Park in Bloomington. Festivities get underway at noon. The walk kicks off at 2 p.m. It's called Homeward Bound. It's a 5K walk to support housing and to fight homelessness. More about all of these at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy doing my best to fill in for Bob Zaltzberg, who's away for the afternoon. You know, I'm starting to get a complex. Every time I come here, Zaltzberg's on vacation. He's scared of you maybe. I don't know. Uh, Well, he's going to have to be because I'm I'm getting a complex. Bob, I hope you're listening to this. Um, If you have a comment or question for our guests, and our guests just to recap, our State Senator Vice Simpson and State Representatives Matt Pierce and Peggy Welch, we invite your comments and questions, and we have a couple of uh, folks on the line right now. The number in Bloomington is 855-0811. Outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And our email address is noon at indiana.com. E-D-U, and we'll take uh, Sarah, who's on the line and has been waiting very patiently. Sarah? I, I, I don't know whether my question is out of date already or not, but I'd like to hear what's going to happen 
or what has happened. Uh, I've been hearing some concern that funding to uh, community mental health centers uh, might be cut rather drastically, or cut at all for that matter, and that that funding for mentally ill people uh, who who are able to live in the community um, might therefore, well, they might therefore not be served while living in the community nearly as well as they are. Uh, leaving aside for the moment the question of exactly how well any individual center has done in serving people. Uh, is, is this true about the general funding changes? Okay. And what does it mean if it is? Thank you, sir. Well, the Senate Republican budget that passed the Senate uh, this week cut the community mental health center appropriation uh, from what was in the House Democrat budget. So... Um, it is unclear to me right now how that will end up, but um, I suspect that the three of us will be supporting the additional funding. If if we can get it in, we will certainly do that. We we did in the, the House increase the funding for our community health centers and also um, in the health bill, Senate Bill 503 that we passed, we made sure that there was a recognition of that health includes substance abuse treatment and also mental health treatment. So uh, we are committed to this, and we will continue to watch it closely and do what we can. So, Vi, I guess because I haven't had a chance to compare, you just the Senate just reduced it back to what it is currently because we had increased it. Yes, the House the House passed budget had an increased pr- appropriation for community mental health centers, right. particularly, right. and the seriously mentally ill appropriation. I'm I'm not as clear about whether there was an increase or whether that was just a, a, a straight line. I think it was a straight line. But, uh, but the Senate version that passed this week and now will go to conference committee, uh, I know, decreased the community mental health centers. Probably uh, back to what it was, just flatlined it. It, from- it, it probably was. And, and this is of particular uh, interest to us because, and, and should be for everyone, particularly those in, in local government and uh, in the judicial system. Um, people who pay for jails and and those kinds of facilities, because as we deinstitutionalize people with um, with mental illness, um, if we don't pick up the services at the local level, if we don't develop the kinds of services that they require uh, to be productive citizens, uh, to make sure they're taking their meds and those kinds of things, then they're going to end up in the judicial system, and we all pay. So that's why we have such a, a huge commitment, I think, to to making sure that people have the resources that they need at the, at the local level before we close down state institutions. They need to go hand in hand, and we have not done We've been great at closing institutions, but we've not done uh, the best job we could to build the resources at the local level. And that's why funding for the community mental health centers are so important. Okay. We have – we're kind of like the legislature here. We're two-thirds done and we uh, still haven't talked about (laughs) school funding formula and a lot of other things. We have three callers on the line, but Mary Catherine has been very patient with these emails here. We'll try Uh, to talk faster and quicker. Oh, yeah. This is – I'm going to open up the fine kettle of fish now though. Uh, This is specifically targeted to Peggy, but I think each of you are going to want to comment on this. Um, It says, uh, Representative Welch, you co-sponsored SJR7 two years ago. What do you think about the criticisms directed against SJR7? this session by corporate leaders, domestic violence advocates, university faculty and staff, and some lawyers. Okay. Um, Just to make a correction, I was a co-sponsor of SJR 7 in 2004. Okay. Um, And because I heard from constituents who said, Peggy, we know how you feel about this issue, but why rub salt in the wound? And so I made a conscious choice to not be a co-sponsor of that again. Um, what has happened just as a review for people, the bill or the resolution to change the Constitution passed the Senate, came to the House, was sent to the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee had a, almost a three-hour hearing. Then the next week they voted on it. Uh, it did not come out of committee. It was a five-to-five five vote. There were uh, Democrats on the Rules Committee who voted for the bill in the 2005 session, um, and but they have changed their mind because they felt like they heard testimony that – um, caused them to hesitate, not on Section A, which is the marriages between a man and a woman, but the Section B, which they um, testimony came forth. Is there going to be a problem with um, domestic violence, uh, people being held accountable for that? 
Is there going to be problems with um, universities, companies being able to offer domestic partnership benefits? Um, there's, um, I, there's arguments on both sides. I can say that I contacted a, a constitutional law professor at IU, um, and his response back to me was, well, I wouldn't say it's perfectly written, but I don't think it's going to have any of those problems. Um, and in the states, they, there are other states that are being compared to that, oh, this is happening in this state or this is happening in this state. That will be happening here. The language of Section B is different than those other states. Um, but I have to um, – I can't um, criticize my colleagues who felt uncomfortable with that and thought that they wanted to have more time to look at it and consider it. To give an update, too, the way it works to change the Constitution, you have to pass the same language in two terms, and a, t a term is two years. So we passed it in 2005 with the opportunity to pass it in uh, this session or in the 2008 session. So there is still time for this to be considered, discussed. Um, I, the Section A would pass 85 percent. There, It would fly through. There's the hesitation about Section B, and that's what will continue to be discussed. Is there any chance that it will resurface in the remaining weeks? Well, you can you can never say never, but I I, the, I think everybody in charge of the House has declared that the vote is the vote, and and that's it for this session. I think uh, it's a very volatile issue that people feel very strongly about on both sides, and I think that was uh, highlighted very graphically by Terry Austin's testimony and what's happened with her. She's the She's the chair, isn't she, of the Transportation Committee that you're yes. referring in? Right. And when she voted against it, it really ripped her up. I mean, she was crying. Um, but she was the deciding vote, and now it looks like Republicans well, they, are— Each one of them was the deciding vote. Right, any of them. Yeah, because <clears> there <throat> were three uh, Democrats who voted yes in 2005, but as members of the Rules Committee, after they had heard their testimony— um, in committee, they were hesitant because right. of that. Again, the issue is not dead, and again, the— Reminder is that what this would do is to send it to the public to have the opportunity to decide if they agreed or disagreed with changing the Constitution. Yeah, I just find it telling, though, that that, that uh, one political party is really targeting her right now, and 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 it seems very odd to me that they're. Really well, I don't know if it's a party. There's some um, groups out there mm -hmm. um, who are targeting her, um, and I think it's pretty mean spirited. Whether I agree or disagree with um, Terry Austin on that. Uh, I don't appreciate the mean-spiritedness that has been demonstrated toward her. That's a whole other question that we'll see in the next 60 minutes if we have time for it. But the way that votes are being conducted this time with the 2008 elections in mind. We have three folks, I think, still on the line. Let's go to Jim, first of all. Jim? Yeah, uh, Peggy and Vine know me. This old Jim, uh, 50 years ago, I worked on construction in uh, Toll Road and Interstate uh, 74. And since then, with urban sprawl, a bit of humor came to me that they'd eventually be planting corn down through the median <laughs> strips, and uh, I think it's going to happen now. Uh, flashback to the discussion on ethanol, the cost of making ethanol and the, the uh, force it's going to have on uh, food prices for uh, people and maybe uh, crowd out other pl uh, crops is something that I think should be considered. Uh, it costs a lot of money to make ethanol. And uh, um, can you just kind of review uh, your thoughts about what it's going to do to food prices? Okay, uh, thank I'll you, Jim. I'll answer on the phone or the radio. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, We're I, looking at Matt expectantly. Right, right. I, I've attended a number of environmental conferences where this issue has come up, and there have been a lot of people who've who've said that the inputs to produce the corn outweighs the energy you get out, out of the end when you run it through the ethanol plant. And I've been at several conferences now where they've said that, in fact, it is a better yield, that you can justify the inputs coming in. And other people have raised concerns that it's going to impact um, the food supply if all the corn is being used um, you know, for energy instead of food. And, and I think that uh, I'm not sure that that's as great a fear as some people might think, but, but this is un, it's undeniably true that um, – we need, it would be better to find a more efficient way to get to ethanol than, than using the corn itself. And so there's all kinds of research going on in what they call cellulosic um, ethanol, which you'd use the corn stalks to um, 
create the energy. There's switchgrass is another thing people are looking at. And so I do think that we need to really continue hard in the biofuels area to look for alternatives to corn so it doesn't have to bear the entire load of the process because I think it would be better um, for that to be processed. And the interesting thing is uh, at the Ag Day, which I attended a couple weeks ago at dinner, there was a great um, professor from Purdue, I have to say, um, ag economist, who talked about um, ethanol and how it was working. And, And the fact that when he said that when corn was like at two fifty a bushel, I guess, and the gas was at three dollars or more a gallon, that you could make back your investment in an ethanol plant in a year or two. I mean, it was just tremendously profitable. But now that corn is, he said at the time was I guess five dollars a bushel or something, and gas had been down closer to two for a while. I noticed it's back up almost to three or at mm-hmm. three again. But when you have the dynamic of gas down and corn up, then suddenly the economics of ethanol do not look all that great. And you have to wonder if all these ethanol plants get built if you if that dynamic stays of high corn prices and maybe gas prices settling out closer to two than three, it, it might not make economic sense for these plants being built. So certainly and, worth looking into. And on Marketplace last night, I think when I was listening, they were talking about this very issue and that what's affecting us also is as you've got developing countries such as China and India that have more disposable income, but they do not have um, the places to plant because of their own urban sprawl, that that's causing the cost of our food to go up. So there are several factors uh, that we've got to uh, take into play. And so we've got people that want to buy our corn, and it's not they want to eat it. They, it's not to make gas, but it's going to cost us more in the long run okay. to pay for it. We have a couple more callers, and I'll ask our callers in the remaining uh, few minutes uh, to keep their questions uh, brief because time is uh, becoming an increasingly valuable resource as we get close to 1 o'clock. And our next caller is another Jim. Jim, go ahead. Hi. uh, I'm calling from Terre Haute. I think our main problem is lobbying and campaign reform, that that if we get rid of the lobbyists and and people who are influencing our representatives, that we could uh, fix things, that our Constitution protects our uh, right to be represented by our, our representatives, and that if we uh, had a bill that said that it's clearly stated that no one can lobby a representative or candidate if they are not an actual person who can vote for that candidate, we could get rid of all these uh, corporations, foreign lobbyists, and other lobbyists from around the world that's influencing our government and bring it back to where they represent us, the citizens, and they won't have all these uh, problems with uh, lobby groups preventing them from passing their bills. Well, uh, I'll take a stab at this. Uh, Jim, I I don't think the problem is the the lobbyists in the hallway. Uh, I think the problem is how much it costs to run for office, and and how we are uh, uh, forced to raise in in some of the House districts uh, in, during the last election. I think uh, I think candidates raised two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to run. The the reason that you have to raise all that money is because you're competing against other people's lobbyist groups who are raising that kind of money for them. That if no one had that kind of money because of the lobbyists, then you would have to only raise against the people in your constituent group. I'm going to I'm going to argue. I'm going to interrupt you back and say that that um, that what we need to look at is public financing of campaigns and and we have we have got to do something about how how we raise money for campaigns how much campaigns cost and um, and and the whole and all the rules surrounding campaigning um, to me that is the evil component in politics today uh, and it skews it skews not only the general assembly but it skews congressional races and and uh, activities it skews the local races and activities it it it's just an unnecessary nasty thing that need that we need to clean up out of politics and uh, honestly the lobbyists provide good information and good research and good legislators listen to lobbyists on all sides of issues including talking to constituents that's my my job. My job is to sort through the information I get and figure out which information I can trust and which which information I know to be accurate. That's my job. But but the the problem in the system is that too many people are too beholden to too too few, and uh, that's what we need to clean up. Okay. Amen. All right. Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, about nine more minutes left in this program. If you'd like to offer your comment or question, the number is 855-0811 in Bloomington. Outside the Bloomington area, it's a toll-free call, 877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. We have a caller on the line, and let's go to Karen. Hello? Hi, go ahead. 
Hi, my name is Karen. I have a question specifically about the education funding formula. I'd like to know what the chances are of that being adjusted so that MCCSC can get our what's reported to be our fair share of funding and that we've uh, maybe over the last 30 years received less than our fair share. And the funding expert here, Bye Simpson. <laughs> wow, <clears throat> that is uh, such a complicated question. We could do a whole hour on it alone. Um, and I, I don't know how one interprets the fair share. Um, I, I do know that over that many, many years ago, the Monroe County School Corporation, like Richland Bean Blossom, like Eastern Green, like Brown County, and many other rural school corporations, got stuck under uh, Governor Bowen's tax freeze, property tax freeze, got stuck with lower uh, starting points. Over the years, however, the school funding formula has tried to build into it ways to uh, to manipulate that to get it up. Uh, Monroe County School Corporation it, is not one of the school corporations, one of the 127 school corporations, I think it was, two years ago that actually lost state dollars. Um, and so I, I don't think it's quite... Uh, right to say that it that it isn't getting its fair share. On the other hand, the problem with the school funding formula is are, is manifold, and you know I can go over them all at some other time. But um, but the the real problem here is that we need a school funding formula that deals with uh, complexity, that deals with fixed costs for school corporations, that uh, that makes sure that declining and static school corporations like Monroe County School uh, schools. Uh, which are not an increasing population, uh, are not penalized at the, uh, at, to the benefit of the Carmel Indianas of the world where, where they're, they have huge growth in their schools. Um, and, and, but mostly the real problem for the schools is, is that there's not enough money in the school funding formula to allow the formula to work. And so um, it's, it's a very complicated uh, issue, and I wish we had a lot of time to talk about it because it actually is my favorite subject. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that the answer to your question is, are we going to try to make it better? Yes, we are. Um, do, do we and have we over the last 30 years tried to make it better? Yes, we have. And in many ways, it has been, uh, been made better for school corporations like Bloomington. And uh, just to put a plug in, there is a group of educators and family members who are coming to Indianapolis this Wednesday. They're, they've got a rally planned for Wednesday morning, I think at 11, and Vi and Matt and I will be attending that because they want their voice heard. They're, they're tired of uh, Lakeview School, which I have uh, toured a few weeks ago, that there's a high student to teacher ratio, and they said they, they're saying we're tired of this. We've got to have some changes, and so they're coming up, and they want to speak to Senator Lubbers, and they want to speak to Senator Meeks, and make sure the voice is heard. So I commend the. They need to speak to Senator it. Kenley and to Senator Kenley. Okay, <laughs> Senator Kenley, who understands the problems of growing enrollment school corporations, but has not a clue about the problems of declining schools and, right. and schools that are have static populations. And I, and I would just say that there is one positive I think in the process at the moment is two years ago we were talking about negative to 1% increase overall in school funding formula. And now we're talking about 3 or 4%. And so if we can get, you know, there are a lot of details in the formula and how that will affect our individual schools that we really have to be on guard about. But at least we're talking overall about a larger amount of money than we've had for quite some time. All yes. right. So what's up with the In God We Trust license plates? Boy, they're all over the place, aren't they? What's up with that? I I just would like to have your comments on how those came into being. And uh, There was legislation the that was carried by Woody Burton, mm-hmm. who said um, and heard from people who said they would like to have that and to make that point. It is uh, you buy the license plate uh, just like you would buy a regular license plate. There's no extra. You don't pay, pay the vanity amount. And the money just goes into the general revenue. It doesn't go to any special group. And those were all the details that were worked out, and they're selling like hotcakes. Right. And I was the only person in the House of Representatives, I think, who voted against that bill. Now, the interesting thing is, I have no idea this whether it's true or not, but I keep hearing rumors that perhaps there are certain license branch employees that are somehow kind of pushing the plate, like, oh, gee, why have the regular plate when for the same price or, you know, no additional cost, you can have this great in God we trust plate. I've I don't, heard that rumor as well. I, I don't know if that's happening or not, that. but um, there, there are a lot of them out there. And it's interesting to me that... 
During the debate of that bill, there was absolutely no controversy or discussion or feedback at all from from people. Um, I heard from a few people in favor of it. But um, it's only now that the plates are actually on the car that I'm beginning to get a lot of mail. I guess a lot might be an overstatement. I'm getting some mail and comments from people saying, like, what is the deal with this and God we trust plate? So it's interesting to me that little interest during the legislative process, but now that it's actually in place, some people are beginning to question what it's all about. Okay. We've only got about three. It's prettier. (laughs) It's blue. We only have a... Mary Catherine's being very, very nice. Uh, three hours, uh, excuse me, three minutes left, a little less than that, and there's so much we haven't talked about. But one thing we haven't talked about that we need to address, I think, in 180 seconds, is funding for higher education. <laughs> What's the prospect? In 180 seconds. Specifically in terms of the uh, funding for life sciences. I, th- I think the universities, in terms of their operating budgets, are going to do better this year than they did two years ago, simply because there's, there's more money uh, available. Um, and both the House and the Senate versions of the budget had significant increases for higher ed. Um, for life sciences, however, the Senate, both the, the House and the Senate uh, versions had appropriations for life sciences. The Senate version, though, is dependent upon the privatizing of the lottery, which I don't think is going to happen. Of all the proposals out there, I think that's the one least likely to happen. And so uh, I, I, they're trying to pull a fast one. No one should should uh, be uh, should be fooled by the fact that uh, life sciences has an appropriation because the funding mechanism is, is but farce. That's, but that's the Senate version. The House version uh, didn't appropriate the whole uh, request, but we did appropriate, and it was not dependent on the, the privatization. No, I thought I made that clear. I'm sorry. And uh, and so my point is that everybody wants life sciences, but we're still arguing over uh, how we're going to pay for it. And uh, I I do believe that it's important, it's important for the state's future, and that uh, the conference committee will end up with some appropriation, probably not the whole thing, but uh, we're going to have to find a sun- funding source that is reasonable. Absolutely. All righty. I think we may have to, to uh, leave it at that. I'd like to uh, thank our guests uh, thank you. for joining us this afternoon. There really is so much more that we could have talked about. How, how, let me just ask you. You'll have real to have quickly. me come back and talk about the school funding formula. <laughs> well, then Bob would have to take another day off. Oh, well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> is it my imagination or with, with only like 12 days left or 15 in the session – I'm baffled that that the uh, the sessions each week seem to be not very. It's like you guys meet for Monday through Wednesday, and then Thursday and Friday are kind of off days. Well, the past couple we of were weeks. meeting deadlines last week, but uh, starting on Monday, we'll be meeting Monday through Friday, Saturday okay. in some cases. So no, we're no we're, need we're, for a special session. You think? Ep- oh, no, we just there have is to bring it up. No, there is okay. no need for no a need. special session. Okay, we're going to get it done. All righty, we'll leave it uh, there. Thanks very much to our guests this afternoon: Thank you. State Senator Vice Simpson and State Representatives Peggy Welch. And Matt Pierce, thanks to Mary Catherine Carmichael. Thank you, Bob. We'll be proud of the filling job you did. (laughs) Thanks also to producer Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash. For Bob Zaltzberg, I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.